do with anything, particularly the Bible, but uh, when, when I saw the caption, Chris over here stole my line, when, when, when I saw the video, the caption read, could you imagine ex- trying to explain this to the insurance company without the video? <laughs> I mean, think about it. So, like, you, you call the insurance company and you say, I've got these two vehicles that were somewhat destroyed by moose. And which, by the way, the plural of moose is moose. If you're new to true life, that's the kind of deep spiritual insight you can expect (laughs) every week. Uh, But yeah, uh, you call the insurance company, and yeah, two moose destroyed my truck. Now, I don't know, some places maybe that makes sense, but like in East Tennessee, yeah, right, whatever, that's crazy, there's no way except it was, it did happen, and, the, and they had the video to prove it. And some of you may be, look at the Bible, you may look at Jesus, you may look at the book of Daniel, you may hear us talk about things like Jesus coming back, and like the Antichrist, and those kind of things, you're like, yeah, right, whatever, no way, that's crazy. But there's some evidence. And what I want you to see today is the evidence. I don't have video evidence, but... Uh, I've got a, kind, of, kind of got the ancient version of that today, and it's predictive prophecy. I want you to see that God predicted, really God wrote the future in advance, because if that really happened, what it means is, is that he knows and he controls the future, and it means that his word is true, and it means that we can, should, we ought to trust him. And that's a good thing. And so, what we're going to do, we're going to walk through Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to give you some background, and we're going to have to get into a little history today. Now, some of you are probably groaning at that. It's like for some of the others, if I said we're going to do some math today, you'd be groaning over that. But, um, you know, I've tried as we walk through Daniel to give enough background to make it understandable without getting into too much detail. Hope I've done a good job of that. I'm going to try to do the same thing uh, today, but maybe this is a good day for me because maybe I'll actually get to use my history degree today. Hey, you guys know what uh, the difference is between a large pizza and a history degree? Yeah, a large pizza can feed a family of four. <laughs> that, 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 that's the difference. <laughs> but so, just just indulge me. Let you know, we paid thousands of dollars for this. Let, let me let me put some use to it. Um, so, it's something I, I kind of uh, alluded to at the beginning of it that I want to get into a little bit more detail now is that Daniel was written around 530 BC. That's the traditional view on it. But that's been challenged over the years, and a lot of people would move it up into like the first century. Uh, and, and the reason is, part of the reason is, because they don't believe that predictive prophecy is possible. So to really get Daniel chapter 8, for it to really mean anything, really for any of the book to have to mean anything, it actually had to be written around 530 B.C. Otherwise, you know, there's no prophecy to it. It's just a forgery. It's somebody going back and just writing about uh, what's already happened. So I want to give you a few reasons real quick uh, before we get into the text to believe that Daniel 
the person who's portrayed in the book actually wrote the book uh, somewhere around 530 B.C. in the 6th century B.C. One reason I believe it is because Jesus believed it. When, when you read Matthew 24, 15, Jesus uh, spoke of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And he's referring to something that's kind of alluded to here in chapter 8 and is more specific near the end of chapter 9. Jesus is picturing it as a future event. What we're going to read in, in Daniel chapter 8 is a time this happened in history, but it's a type or a picture of something that's going to happen in the future. This is an example of an Old Testament prophecy with kind of dual fulfillments uh, to it. We're going to see a historical fulfillment today that's a type or a picture of something that's going to happen in the future. But for a Bible-believing Christian, that ought to settle it because Jesus is our Lord. He rose from the dead. If he believed it, we ought to believe it. Uh, another reason to believe it, though, is Ezekiel did. Ezekiel, twice in Ezekiel chapter 14, uh, once in chapter 28, spoke of Daniel. And the, and the significance of this is uh, Ezekiel was also a 6th century prophet. And, and so he's speaking of someone who was a contemporary with him. He's not looking several hundred years into the future. Some other reasons to believe this is that the writer displays a detailed knowledge of 6th century people, places, and events. Uh, leading Old Testament scholars like Gleason Archer, and, and this is you know, beyond my uh, scholarly credentials, but you know, what they say is the language fits uh, the, the Aramaic and, and the Hebrew of the 6th century B.C. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, was done in the 3rd century. Now, the significance of this is some of what we're going to read about today, like Medo-Persia, was started around the time of Daniel. What we're going to read about Greece happened in the 300s. What we're going to read about, though, with Antiochus uh, happened in the 100s. So it was translated into Greek, you know, even before at least the Antiochus part of it. And then you have the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that a lot of the discoveries there would demonstrate that it's older. So when put all that together and there's more, I'm just, that's just a quick overview I believe that Daniel actually wrote this in the 6th century B.C. And he is talking about, and what we're going to read today, and then what we're going to read in a couple of weeks, near the end of chapter 9, in detail, things that have happened in history, but he wrote about them specifically hundreds of years before they came to be. And I would argue if that really happened, it shows that the Bible is a trustworthy book, that it is the Word of God. So, with that in mind, let's read the text and, and, and see what he actually writes here. So, starting in verse 1, and when you look at Daniel chapter 8, it divides out pretty neatly. Uh, the first half is a vision. The second half is the interpretation of the vision that was given to uh, Daniel. So, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. To me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time, which is what we looked at last week, I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, or some translations say Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision uh, that I was by the river Ule. And then uh, I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. And uh, the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Um, and I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him. 
nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now, let's fast forward, and this is how we're going to look at this chapter. Let's fast forward to verse 19 and look at the interpretation of this. He tells us uh, what this means. He says, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth. Wait, sorry, got ahead of myself. Uh, let, let's stop there. Verse 20 again. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So he predicts that. And is that what happened in history? The answer is yes. Uh, did they expand in the way that he's talking about? The answer is yes. Stephen Miller puts it this way. He says, Medo-Persia made most of its conquest in these directions. To the west, it's to do Babylonia, Syria, Asia Minor, and made raids upon Greece. To the north, Armenia, Scythia, and, Ca and the Caspian Sea region. To the south, Egypt and Ethiopia. The text means that the Medo-Persian Empire will become large and powerful, which, it did, which did in fact occur. More territory was controlled by this empire than by any other until that time. Okay, so that's, that's the first part of the prediction here. But, again, that started happening. We've already seen this in the book during Daniel's time. So that's not as big of a deal. The, the next two parts of it, where he talks about Greece and Antiochus, this is where he's really getting into the future, and this is where it really becomes a big deal. So let's go back to verse 5. He says, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And that's basically a metaphorical way of saying that he conquered the whole world quickly. And he says, the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Now, fast forward. Verse 21 says, The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Very specific. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Now, I'm going to read a little summary about this, but this part of it, I probably don't even have to. Even if, uh, even if you weren't like a history major, even if you hated history, you probably remember this, because it's about Alexander the Great, Greece. Um, Alexander was one of the great military strategists of history. He was born in 356 B.C., the son of a great conqueror in his own right, Philip of Macedon. Alexander was only 20 in 336 B.C. when he succeeded his father as king. A year and a half later, in 334, he launched his attack against the Persians. In that same year, Alexander won the Battle of Granicus in Asia Minor, thereby bringing to an end the dominance of the Medo-Persian Empire. With his subsequent victories at Eshu in 333 and Arbella in 331, the conquest of Medo-Persia was complete. 
And then, after he died suddenly of a fever at the age of 32, history tells us that his kingdom was divided among his four top generals, Cassander over Macedon and Greece, Lysimachus over Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus over Syria and Babylon, and Ptolemy over Egypt. So, when you think about what we read in Daniel, 200 years before it actually happened, it was predicted in great detail. Now, let's go on to something that may be a little less familiar to you, or or, or maybe it's not. So back to verse 9. It says, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which is Israel. And let me just go ahead and say here, this this is what we'll see, is a, a historical figure by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. So this horn is different than what we saw in in chapter 7. You can read the two chapters kind of side by side and see the differences there. The horn in chapter 7 is is clearly talking about a future figure, the Antichrist. This is talking about a historical figure, although he's a picture or a type of uh, the Antichrist. And I don't have really probably time to get into that, but if you'll look at the notes in the app, You'll see a quotation from a Bible commentary that shows about 11 ways that he's a picture of uh, the the Antichrist. But uh, his name was Antiochus. He gave himself the title Epiphanes. And this will tell you a little bit about the guy. Epiphanes means God manifest. That's that's what he titled uh, himself. Um, he, He was a second century figure. The Jews actually called him Epimanus which meant madman. And uh, that's a pretty good description of him. Look at how uh, Daniel uh, describes him prophetically here of what's going to happen. At verse 10 it says, And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Well, that sounds like what a guy who nicknames himself God Manifest uh, would do. He says, He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgressions, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And it's interesting when you think about the 2,300 days, uh, Antiochus rule and rampage over the Jews lasted between six and seven years, uh, is what history books would say, which is around 2,300 days. Now, Let's move ahead to verse 23. It says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. And this is key. But he shall be broken without human means. 
And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in uh, the future. Because this is something that's going to be fulfilled uh, over 350 years later. But again, there's also a reference there to the time of the end and the Antichrist. Now, you can read about Antiochus Epiphanes in the Jewish book of 2 Maccabees. Uh, you can find it online. Uh, Josephus talked about him in Antiquities and the War of the Jews. Uh, if there's any history nerds, I've got that book in my library. And, but let me just give you a summary that Danny Aiken gives in, in, in his commentary. He says, Antiochus Epiphanes was violently bitter against the Jews. He hated them and was determined to exterminate them and their religion. He devastated Jerusalem in 168 B.C., murdered tens of thousands, defiled the temple, offered a pig on its altar, which would have been just such an affront to them, erected a shrine to Jupiter, prohibited temple worship, forbade circumcision on pain of death, sold 40,000 Jews into slavery, destroyed all copies of Scripture that could be found, and slaughtered everyone found to be in possession of God's Torah. He resorted to every conceivable torture to force Jews to renounce their religion. This all eventually led to what historians call the Maccabean Revolt, revolt in 164 B.C., Judas Maccabees would lead the Jews to victory and the restoration of their religion. Today, Jews celebrate Hanukkah, the festival of lights, in, re in remembrance of that event. Now, see how that fits the prediction. Now, let me give you one more detail about the prediction. Remember the little phrase in there that I said is really important, and, and we'll get to even why it's more important at the end. But it said that uh, this man would be destroyed without human means. Well, here's what 2 Maccabees says about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes' death. Quote, The all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him an incurable and unseen blow. As soon as he ceased speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels for which there was no relief with sharp internal tortures, and that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange inflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, but was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews, and giving orders to hasten the journey. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along, and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. And he didn't die uh, immediately. He died a slow, agonizing death that I will spare you the details of for those who are weak in stomach because I don't want your bowels to be tortured this morning. <laughs> but again, we see this being fulfilled in history written several hundred years in advance. That's the background. What's the significance? What does it mean to us? Well, I think, based on this, we should have the conviction that the world seems out of control, but God knows, predicts, and controls the future. I mean, prophecy is history written in advance. 
But the only way you can pull that off is if you can actually make it happen. So this would say that God doesn't just know the future, that he controls the future. And listen, that wasn't true just then. It's true now with what's going on in the world today. And you know what? It's true of our lives as well. That's the conviction. The world seems out of control, but it's really not because God knows, predicts, and controls the future. So if that's true, what's the action that we should take based on that? It's that we will trust God with our lives and futures because His Word is trustworthy. We will trust God with our lives and futures because His Word is trustworthy. Proverbs 30, verse 5 puts it this way. It says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. How do you trust God? You can't trust God without trusting His Word. You can't trust God without obeying His Word. The psalmist said that God has exalted His Word above His name. Listen, we can say we can believe the Bible, but faith without works is dead. So what we believe is not what we say, it's what we do. So are we living like the Bible is trustworthy. Is this what we're basing our lives on? And some of you are like, I don't even know if the Bible's even true. All that has been disproved, those kind of things. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that Christianity is true, that the Bible is, is, is the Word of God. I, I preached a message back in the summer. It was the last message in, in, in the Jude series. If you've got questions uh, about this, uh, which the, the, the series was titled, uh, the, the Faith That Stands and the Faith That, that, that Falls. But uh, and I preached a message where I give a few reasons where I believe it's true. Let me add a couple to that this morning based on what we see in this text. Number one. There are many fulfilled prophecies in Scripture here and elsewhere. And if you're going to say the Bible is not true, if you're going to say Christianity is not true, this is one of the things that you have to explain away. And so, how do you explain away? Somebody predicting in very specific detail events, I mean kind of a course of world history for that part of the world, uh, hundreds of years in advance. Uh, again, the, the most common route, really the only route that you can take with this text, is so specific, is to say it was written after the fact. That's why I started where I did. But I don't think the evidence for that holds up. But even beyond that, when we get to chapter 9, we're going to look at a very specific prophecy, even of the time of the first coming of Jesus Christ. But when you think about it, Josh McDowell in Evidence of the Man's Verdict lists 61 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a man by the name of Peter Stoner who scientifically demonstrated that the odds of even eight of those 61 
I mean, even if you want to throw some out or say, you know, Jesus was manipulating things to fulfill these, you know, some he couldn't do that. He couldn't control people gambling for his clothes on the cross, where he was born, a lot of things like that. He said, if you uh, take even eight of those, the scientific probability of that happening is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 in, in, in 10 with 17 zeros on the end of it. Any of you math whizzes know what you call that? I don't know. That's a lot, right? <laughs> That's like a gazillion or something like that. Uh, he said if you take 48 of them, the scientific probability is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And, and really, you get into numbers like that, it's basically saying it's impossible. So, again, if you're going to explain away Christianity, there's many fulfilled prophecies in Scripture here and elsewhere that you have to explain away. And this chapter, I think, is one of those. But I, there's a second thing that I want to point out from this chapter. Uh, that is, that I think if you're going to explain the Bible away, you have to explain away the continued existence and flourishing of Israel in the face of hatred and persecution. Now, this is an important topic. Um, you know, Israel is God's chosen people. We've been grafted in. Uh, we're now, you know, part of God's people. But you, know, you can't read the Bible and minimize Israel. You know, really, I think we have an election this week. Uh, as Christians, we should vote biblically, you know, based on issues, not candidates, parties, those kind of things. But I think one of the things, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, that you should evaluate when you're considering who to vote for is how do they view and how are they, they intend to relate to Israel. That, that's a biblical uh, issue. But uh, when, when you think about it, look, look back, let's look back in verse 25 for a second. It says, Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, the Messiah. But he shall be broken without human means. And much of the history of Israel has been them being persecuted, attacked by madmen, think of the Holocaust, and then God delivering them. I think one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world is six million Jews being slaughtered in the Holocaust and them being their own land in their own nation, winning a war less than five years after that. I mean, how do you explain that? I mean, I, I, I've been to Israel once, and, you know, what, what just amazed me is how small it is. And it's surrounded by people that want to obliterate them. But they're flourishing. How do you explain that? Well, I think the Bible explains it. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord has said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and your name and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why uh, has uh, why does Israel ha has it existed? Why has it made it through all these difficulties, all this persecution, hatred? Why are they in their own land, flourishing as a people, despite all this opposition? I believe. It's because God's word is true, and what Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says is true. 
So that's my explanation. Maybe you've got a different explanation, but is it a better explanation? But then th- there, there's a second question I want to pose on this before we move on, and that is why? Why this particular nation getting picked on so much? Why does everybody hate this nation? You know, I, I'm talking about, uh, you know, on a macro level through the years, talking about anti-Semitism. I mean, down to the point, I mean, there's a controversy in the NBA right now over Kyrie Irving suspended for a few games because he I- endorsed uh, a movie that apparently, I've not seen it, I don't know the details, but, you know, has some anti-Semitic, uh, you know, tone uh, to it. But why would this be? Well, again, I think the Bible gives an answer to that. So let's, let's go to Revelation chapter 12 uh, for a minute. And it says, starting in verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And you say, Who is this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars? Well, I'll tell you who it is. It's God's people. It's the nation of Israel. And you say, well, how do you know that? I mean, how do we interpret these crazy symbols? Well, it's pretty simple. We interpret it just like we do any other part of the Bible. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. So, let's go back to Genesis chapter 37 for a second. Again, we interpret Scripture by Scripture, but again, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is how amazingly it fits together. Uh, it, the only way it can interpret it itself when it's, uh, you know, uh, 40 authors, 66 books written over a uh, 2,000-year or so period is if there's one author, one divine mind behind it all. So Genesis 37, verse 9, this chapter is the beginning of the Joseph story, and it says, Then he, Joseph, dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? What are the twelve stars? It's the, the, the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. Listen, you want to understand the book of Revelation, just run the Old Testament references, and you can understand most of it. So, nation of Israel says, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having uh, seven heads. And this is a symbol of Satan. And ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Remember Herod having the trying to have all the babies in that district killed. It says she bore a male child. You say, well, how do you know this is talking about Jesus? How do you know it's talking about the Messiah? Notice what it says. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Again, run the Old Testament. What's that? It's Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. 
It's talking about Jesus. It says, And her child was caught up to God and in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, verse 13, when the woman or when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Why is uh, has Israel been treated this way? Why is there so much anti-Semitism? It's because the devil hates the people of God. The devil hates Jesus, and Jesus the Messiah came through uh, Israel through uh, you know he, he's a Jew. And so he is the one who is behind all of this. That would say to us then practically that anti-Semitism, or really we could add to that and say that racism in any form since everyone is made in the image of God is satanic. It's devilish. That's where it comes from. So, I believe when we read Daniel chapter 8, Again, the conviction that we ought to have from this is that the world seems out of control. But God knows and predicts and controls the future. And then based on that, live a life of faith, trusting Him and His Word. Because clearly, His Word is trustworthy if all of this is true. I mean, you know, to me, it's like, and when you, when you read this chapter and you think about this background and you put these details that together, I mean, what an amazing book that this is. So let me close with three practical applications. What do we do with this uh, in, in, in our lives? Number one, Based on all this, God's word is true, so it is the authority for our lives. Now, we don't like the word authority, but it's a good thing in this case. Because what this means is that we don't have to figure it all out. We have something outside of us that's true and that's solid and that's guiding us. That's what this means. It, you know, if this is true, I, I mean, if, if, if this is the Word of God, and which again, based on what we've seen today and many other reasons, uh, I, I'm willing to stake my life in eternity on this being the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient Word of God, the sure and certain Sinner uh, uh, or, or sure and certain guide for our faith and our lives, that means that we're to interpret life by Scripture. And that our question is, as we make decisions and evaluate our experiences, is what does the Bible say? What does it mean? Listen, the psalmist said that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Apart from Scripture, You're trying to navigate a dark world in blindness apart from the illumination of the Word of God. I mean, even the apostles lived this way. You know, when when you read the book of Acts, and and, and you just think about it, in chapter 1, they were trying to make a decision as to whether or not they should replace Judas. You know what they did? They went to the Old Testament and decided, yes, we should. 
in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and, and they're speaking these other languages, and people are making fun of them and saying they're drunk. And Peter says, no, we're not drunk. And he goes back to the book of Joel, and he, he, he explains, he interprets their experience in the light of Scripture. You go to Acts chapter 4, and uh, they're being persecuted. And uh, how do they respond to it? They respond to it based on Psalm chapter 2. And they get together, and they pray, and they speak God's word with boldness. In Acts chapter 15, there's a controversy over whether or not uh, salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, or whether or not you had to be circumcised and keep the law too. And Peter and Paul and Barnabas, like the heavy hitters uh, of the early church, stand up and testify and talk about God saving Gentiles through faith. But, and you'd think, you know, just it's Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. We go with whatever uh, they said, but that's not how they made the decision. I mean, read the text. Uh, you go to in Acts chapter 15. They gave their testimony, but then they made, the way they made the decision was James stood up and said what they're saying agrees with the Word of God and went with the Old Testament. And they made the decision yeah, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone based on what the Old Testament says. That's how God's calling us to live our lives. And again, it's good news that we don't have to figure it all out ourselves, but we have a word from God, a sure and certain word that we can listen to Him, and He will guide us. And, and, and listen, it, it's not, you know, the Bible, like sometimes people say, well, God said this, and God told me this, and God told me to tell you this. And listen, I believe the Holy Spirit speaks today, but He only speaks in accordance with the Word of God. You don't have to go with all that kind of subjective stuff. If you want to hear God speak, get in the Bible, interpret it accurately, and you have a Word from God. Live your life based on it. That's what it means to live by faith. Don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. Faith without works is dead. Faith is taking God at his word and acting on it. Listen, we can't face the future. We can't live the life that God wants us to live apart from his word. Again, it's trying to navigate a dark world uh, without any light. This is the lamp unto our feet, the light unto our path. Are you turning that light on in your life? If you're not, I guarantee it's the source of a lot of your problems. And you're missing out on a lot of the solutions. Number two, life can leave us upset and confused. But we must persevere in doing what God has called us to do by doing the next right thing. I didn't read the last verse before. I wanted to save it until here. Uh, but let's look at verse 27. Here, here's how Daniel described all this. He said, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Here's the Jimmy Emmon paraphrase. This completely freaked him out. <laughs> I mean, he's like, I got to go to bed. I, I can't. And I, don't know what, I don't know what all this is talking about. But then notice the next phrase. Because, I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes that's how you, life leaves you feeling, right? This first phrase. But then he says, afterward I arose and went about the king's business. Again. Life can leave us upset and confused. And we can feel like giving up and giving in. We may feel like sometimes just kind of curling up in a ball somewhere. 
but it's always too soon to quit. Just get up and do what God's put in front of you. Persevere. Ask Him for strength. Sometimes, even when it doesn't make any sense, we just got to do the next right thing and trust that the God who's in control of the future is working it all out. Don't give up. I mean, you may not sometimes know I mean, a lot of what to do. You may just be confused about life, but go to work. Take care of your kids. Read your Bible. Work on uh, your marriage. Serve somebody. Help somebody. Just do the next right thing. Do what God puts in front of you. And trust that as we take one step at a time, that he's working out his sovereign plan. Sinclair Ferguson has described this verse this way. I think this is really helpful. It says of Daniel that he returned to the duties to which God had called him. He did not retire from the world in view of the evil days that were coming, nor did he go to the opposite extreme and live on a high of visionary excitement. Instead, he did his duty. Daniel's attitude illustrates an important biblical principle. In view of what the future holds, we must live holy lives now. He caught a glimpse of realities that would take place centuries later. Those events were shadows of the last conflict between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of the world. One day Christ will return and the Antichrist shall be broken without human hand, as the text says, just as Antiochus was. We know this from the New Testament. How then should we live? Passage after passage gives the same answer. Do the king's business. Walk in obedience. Live in holiness. Purify yourself as he is pure. While riding to a preaching engagement one day, John Wesley was stopped by a stranger who asked him what he would do if he knew that Jesus was going to return the next day. Wesley reached into his saddlebag, retrieved his diary, read out his engagements for the rest of the day and for the morning of the next day, and said, That, dear sir, is what I would do. His knowledge of the Lord's future kingdom allowed him to live already for that kingdom That was the spirit of Daniel and should be our spirit as well. So keep going. And again, in in light of the return of Christ, don't, you know, go live in a bomb shelter somewhere. Or, or, you know, don't spend all your time filling out your prophetic charts and your calendars. Or don't go around condemning the world. Do, obey God. Do what he's put in front of you. Build his kingdom You know, live now for the kingdom that's coming. And then last, we see here that God is faithful to take care of his chosen people. That's what he did in chapter 8. He broke this madman without human hands. Now 1 Peter 2.10 tells us that we were once not a people, but we are now the people of God. Through Jesus Christ. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 3. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 tells us that all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. We can trust Him. We can trust Him with our lives. We can trust Him with our futures. Why? Because number one, Jesus is our conqueror. 
Again, verse 25, it says he's broken without human means. Uh, and, and that's what he did with Antiochus. And that's what he's going to do with the Antichrist someday. And the Bible says of the cross, Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Listen, Jesus is our conqueror. We're on the winning side. That's what the future holds for us if we're in Christ. On the cross, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. He defeated uh, Satan and all those who would oppose God. Listen, that victory's not completely consummated yet because God is giving people the space to repent. He's giving people the time to get saved, and we're supposed to be a part of that. But Jesus has won. He's coming back to rule and reign to, to complete the plan, the sovereign plan of God that we've seen throughout uh, Daniel. We can trust him with our lives and our future because he's our conqueror. But, but second, I want you to think about this. So, I mean, this would have, in the time of Antiochus would have been an awful time for the Jews. And there's another time coming like that, the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist. And again, this is a picture of that. But beyond just the, the killing and the torture and all that, what would have been terrible for them is they couldn't practice their religion. I mean, the temple was defiled. They couldn't circumcise. He's getting rid of the scriptures, all these kind of things. They, you know, they couldn't offer sacrifices and, and, and do all of these things. But you know what? I've got some good news for us today. And that is that Jesus is our sacrifice, temple, and high priest who gives us access to God without any human intermediary. That means our access to God and our worship of Him and our life with Him does not depend on what anybody does or how anybody treats us or what's going on in the world around us. It only depends on Jesus Christ, and He has already won the, the victory. I mean, think about it. I mean, He's our sacrifice. John 1.29, Behold, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's our temple. We don't need to have a particular place to worship because Jesus is that place. Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in it talking about heaven for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He is our high priest. Uh, he's the one who gives us access to the Father. Hebrews 4, 14, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then verse 16 tells us that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And to kind of put all that together, here's what Hebrews 10, starting in verse 10, says. It says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. We don't need a human priest. But this man... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And again, when I see these fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, I believe this is true, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he came, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead. And because of that, he's our sacrifice, he's our high priest, he's our temple, he's our access to God. He's our conqueror. He holds the future in his hands. 
He loves you. He died for you. You can trust your life to Him. You can trust His Word and follow His Word and do His will in your life. Listen, again, if you're not a Christian, you understand, if if this is true, I mean, if, if God really predicted the future, and this proves that the Bible is the Word of God, it means your eternal destiny hangs on what you do with Christ. Trust Him. But again, if this is true, it means we have a hope for our future. We have a hope in life right now that everything's not out of control, but that God actually is in control and He's working out His plan. And even when we have defeat, when it's all said and done, we win. We win. You know, it, it, it's kind of like, I'm sure there's a lot of disappointed Tennessee fans uh, today because we lost yesterday. But if we make it to the playoffs and win the national championship, nobody's going to care about that game last night. You're going to lose some in this life. But since Jesus has already won, when we make it to heaven and win the ultimate championship, all those losses are going to fade away. He's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things new. You can trust him. You can trust him. And listen, don't assume you've got forever to do that. Antiochus died in a moment. Alexander conquered the world and died of a fever at 32. Make sure you're right with him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.